Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Today, I was going to be releasing another interview, but I really wanted to record an episode on meltdowns and shutdowns because it's come up with multiple autistic clients and friends in the last week, and it's a really important topic. The goal of this episode is to help you understand meltdowns and shutdowns a bit more, as well as plan ahead to have yours as safely as possible. And ultimately, over time, they may decrease in numbers, but My goal is not to avoid them at all costs because they're actually a really important coping mechanism. Meltdowns are one of the autistic body's surefire ways to let out a lot of stress at once, and they can also be really distressing to yourself and others, especially the aspect of feeling out of control, which really sucks. In this episode, I'm going to share personal examples as I didn't get permission from anyone else to talk about theirs, though it also turns out that one of the clients I was talking to had extremely similar patterns to my own, which I thought was really interesting. I'm also going to share a few articles in the show notes that I looked up, at least one of which is written from an autistic perspective, and I'll put an asterisk next to the ones written by an autistic person, because hearing from autistic people on this topic is so much more useful. There are two broad topics in this episode, what are meltdowns and shutdowns, and how do we plan ahead to have them as safely as possible? Meltdowns are a way of releasing pent-up stress in the body. Long-term stress in the body is called allostatic load. Autistic people tend to have higher allostatic load because our bodies and brains take in more sensory data. We often have more nerve endings throughout our entire body and more neural connections in the brain. It's harder for our brain to filter out stimuli and ignore it, So we are consciously taking in information that many other brains are taking in unconsciously. And yes, there's a lot of overlap with ADHD brains here, but I'm focusing on the autistic experience today because that's the lens through which meltdowns have really been talked about. Even if we have exactly the same capacity as a non-autistic, otherwise known as holistic person, we're taking in more data and get overwhelmed faster. Our brains are also producing more data on their own. There's just a lot going on in here. When we reach a certain level of overwhelm, something that kind of looks like a fight or flight response can kick in, and that's a meltdown. One of its core features is feeling out of control. In children, this often looks a lot like what's sometimes called a temper tantrum, though I don't love that term because I'm assuming that kids having tantrums are also trying to express something uh, and also probably feel out of control in a certain way, but that's for another day. In adults, meltdowns can still have elements of that, including yelling, aggression, self-harm, running away. It can also include elements that people around you might not recognize as a meltdown, including more stimming, both physically and verbally, for example, repeating how much someone upset you over and over, trying to reduce external stimuli by covering your eyes or your ears or leaving the room, and having suicidal ideation. It can also look like a panic attack, which is how many of my meltdowns have presented. A shutdown is usually a suppressed meltdown, which makes sense through the lens of the fight-flight-freeze model, basically the polyvagal theory. If a meltdown is averted, but the stress level is still quite high in the body, shutdown can happen. 
just like freeze happens after an animal can't run or fight. Shutdowns are a more inward and internal response that look much more calm from the outside, but there's still an intense level of distress happening internally. They also help us recover, but typically take much longer than a meltdown. In my experience, where a meltdown can release some stress and lead to a modicum of relief in somewhere between a few minutes and half an hour, a shutdown is more of a rest of the day affair or even a full 24 hours or more. If I have a full meltdown and allow it to finish naturally, there's still a recover period after, but that recover period doesn't feel as bad as a shutdown. And one thing that's been really interesting in the last decade or so is that I rarely have meltdowns on my own anymore. I can usually self-regulate enough. Almost all of my meltdowns have been with other people where I felt like they were pushing me or making demands of me and I eventually snap. And in my experience, those types of meltdowns aren't nearly as useful or regulating. There are probably multiple reasons for that, a couple of which are I'm usually not fully letting go because I'm so desperately trying to not have a meltdown and because I feel so much shame during and after when I'm around someone else. And I'll loop back around to shame near the end because being able to care for ourselves after a meltdown or shutdown is also incredibly important. Moving on to the second big topic, how do we have meltdowns more safely? I experience meltdowns as three stages. One being able to avert or release the stress and actually feel better. So kind of pre-meltdown to the point of no return where if I don't complete the meltdown or shutdown, my allostatic load will be really bad and lead to increased stress for a long time. And three, self-care and recovery after the meltdown or shutdown. In phase one, where the meltdown might be successfully averted, The better I've gotten at this, part of it is about catching it earlier and earlier and removing myself from irritation or overstimulation. The autistic brain cannot as easily filter irritation, so when things are annoying, they tend to stay annoying. Simply removing myself from the irritations or demands and physically releasing some stress sometimes work. In phase two, when I'm reaching this point of no return and then the actual meltdown or shutdown There is one way I know, and this is just my experience, but I know I'm at this point of no return where I need to seriously off-gas stress. If I do the things that normally make me feel better and help me get rid of a bunch of energy, shaking, wiggling, sometimes exercise, time with animals, basically giving my body what it seems to be asking for. If I not only don't feel any better, but feel worse and more amped up, For me, that means my stress level in my physical body is too high and needs a release. The meltdown can be that release. Shutdowns can prevent me from having a full meltdown. And if I'm alone, I can feel better with a shutdown as long as I have ample time to let my stress cycle complete and come down. And if you are headed into a meltdown, if you can feel this stress happening, One thing to work on here is potentially having plans to keep yourself physically safe during the meltdown. For example, you might be able to throw soft objects as opposed to breaking things or flail inside a compression sack or aerial swing or something. Part of my planning ahead is that I assume that I'm going to have meltdowns, even though they're infrequent at this point. I assume that my body is going to reach high points of stress and experience at the very least shutdown experiences due to overheating. For example, this is the one that happens to me most frequently at this point. So planning ahead to be able to let that process happen safely is really important. 
especially if you have people or animals around who might be harmed or distressed when you're out of control. And I know this is not what people want to hear. Most adults especially want to be able to avoid meltdowns and shutdowns forever. But having a meltdown safely can actually be a really great release valve for the body and allow you to return to your day with a lower stress level after the recovery period. One way to be more safe during the meltdown is to actually start it a little bit earlier, a little bit more on purpose. I know the definition of meltdown in part is being out of control, but as you start to learn your body's patterns, and if like me, if you have a particular thing you can do to let you know that the stress level is heading up instead of down, it's possible to get yourself set up for your meltdown. And here are some potential things to use as a jumping off point for a safer meltdown. Having a safe, often small place, unless you're claustrophobic, soft objects you can throw or hit, turning lights down or off, weighted blanket or weighted stuffies can feel good, noise-canceling headphones to block out both external noise and also protect your ears from some of the noises you might be making, trying to match your sounds and movements for bigger release. For example, yelling while you throw one of the soft objects or flailing and wailing at the same time. Making sounds is a big stress reliever because when we're in freeze, we're usually silent. And combining sound and movement is actually a signal of safety to the body, even though of course during a meltdown it feels different. Having some kind of pre-planned signal to people who may be around to let them know what's happening. This could be because you entered a pre-made space, this could be a sign you put up on the door. This could be another form of communication that feels accessible, such as sending a quick text, even if it's just an emoji you've chosen to express this. Committing to moving through the meltdown until you feel a sense of release or completion. So basically letting it complete. Potentially having someone nearby who can check on you if self-harm tends to be an issue. Personally, I don't think it's that bad to be hitting yourself as long as it's not leaving bruises or other damage. But if you tend to hit your head, bite or scratch to the point of drawing blood, or any other self-harm that you need to not have happen, you may want to plan ahead with another person what you want them to do if any of those things are happening. And this is obviously, none of this is medical advice. If you have medical reasons to avoid this type of meltdown, there are also potentially medication options to help you calm down, which I've also used in the form of fairly strong anti-anxiety rescue meds because... I had intense suicidal ideation during meltdowns for a while, which was really distressing. I know I'm making this sound so awesome and fun, right? So now moving on to the self-care or recovery step, you may want to plan some kind of transition out of the meltdown. Some people want comfort. Some people want to be left alone. Some people are hungry or thirsty. Some people feel nauseated. It just really depends on how your body responds to intense stress. And there are a bunch of physical symptoms that can come along with a high nervous system activation and an intense stress response. So you might be hot, you might be having chills, right? There's all these things that can happen when the body has had that kind of intense reaction. Knowing what works for your body and communicating that ahead of time before you reach the meltdown, again, not in the moment, but a totally separate conversation I like the idea of having a little ritual that you do after with things that, you know, work for you. Although I haven't really implemented this myself because mine feel so random <laughs> that I think it's been hard to plan ahead in this way, but there are some things that my partner knows to do if I'm getting to this point. 
And one of the biggest things that come up during and after is shame. This is a huge one for me. Before I realized what meltdowns and shutdowns were, I thought I was just defective and broken. There is no quick fix for shame, but just knowing that meltdowns can be a form of self-care hopefully starts the journey away from shame. Meltdowns and shutdowns are an important release valve for our bodies, and all autistic people I know have experienced meltdowns or shutdowns. It is a normal experience for us. The middle section of this episode focused a lot on meltdowns rather than shutdowns because my current belief from what I know is that it's worth having meltdowns rather than the averted shutdown response, just physically, physiologically. However, if you're finding yourself having shutdowns instead, that's okay. Or if you're choosing that because of who's around you and how your life is, that's okay. A lot of the same basic information applies in terms of having them safely, having things around that work for you, and potentially communicating beforehand so the people close to you know what's going on. And I also recommend reading further on the topic from other autistic people to hear more experiences since this is just my sort of frame. And I did look at some articles and again, I've included those links in the show notes to learn more. For me, it doesn't feel as cathartic and useful to have an absolute last ditch effort meltdown because of interpersonal conflict or difficulty. Like when another, when it feels like another person is making me have a meltdown, it doesn't feel as good after You may experience situations or people with whom meltdowns don't actually help complete the stress cycle. Like the meltdown happens, but you still have an ongoing high level of stress. And if you find yourself feeling worse after a meltdown, that could be part of what's going on. And of course, if you need to avoid meltdowns in certain situations, such as work or around a small child, it's even more important to figure out your own triggers So you can catch it early during that first phase when it's still possible to avert the meltdown. So in this recovery period, what feels good to you after a big stressor? Nature can be really regulating, but it may not feel accessible to find an outdoor space if you don't have one handy. Taking care of the physical body in some way can be useful, such as eating or drinking. You might enjoy the state change of a shower, or you might just want to cozy up under a weighted blanket. And it's okay for the recovery period to be a bit dissociative as well, in my opinion. Watching TV, playing a game, reading, things that pull you out of the body a bit to hopefully lessen the distress. Because again, we can have a lot of physical symptoms coming out of a big stress response, and sometimes that's really distressing to be with. So I think removing yourself a bit from that by distracting yourself for a while is totally fine because those symptoms will come down over time. It's pretty normal for the recovery period to last a while, even if the meltdown felt like it released a lot from the body. And especially for a shutdown, I think it's quite common for it to last the rest of the day or for the recovery to feel longer. Meltdowns are quite useful, and it's not necessarily equally useful in every situation. Having meltdowns and shutdowns relatively safely and recovering after with as little shame as possible has helped me feel like I have a release valve for really hard days. I'm less likely to have that extreme stress buildup and cause big harm. Yes, people around me can still find it distressing if I'm out of control, but communicating ahead of time about what might happen has helped me feel like I'm experiencing something that's normal for my mind-body system. It's just a process that I'm in. If you think this would be helpful to share this episode with your loved ones or people you live with, 
It might help them understand your experiences if any of this resonates. And I wouldn't let anyone push you into trying to avoid meltdowns at all costs, unless it's something you want for your particular situation. Meltdowns and shutdowns are a natural way that our bodies handle the constant overstimulation of being alive. For us, it's actually normal. It's kind of a feature and not a bug. And at the same time, strategizing a bit around how to handle them in a way that feels better for you relieves some stress before, during, and after. There's a lot more to say on this topic, and if you'd like to ask questions or add your own experience, you're welcome to do so as a comment in the transcript linked at the end of the show notes. One big experience I didn't address are non-speaking autists who may not be able to communicate in advance or have control over how they're treated. Another big experience I didn't address is if you have a child who has meltdowns because I wanted to focus on your experience as an adult. If you're autistic and have an autistic kid, I think you can learn a lot by managing your own meltdowns and shutdowns, learning your own triggers, etc., and processing some of your own shame around it. And if you're a non-autistic parent of an autistic kid, I hope you're listening to autistic adults as well as your child. There's such a wide range of experiences, and yes, we all are different, and also there are some pretty common experiences we share, such as becoming overstimulated and having big reactions as a result. This was a fairly quick overview of a big topic, so again, if you have any questions, please drop them as a comment in the transcripts doc if you can, or you can email me at matia at matiamaray.com if you'd like to ask a question or request a topic relatively anonymously. Thanks to everyone who's listening. We have a couple cool interviews coming up on the podcast, and I'm also working on a really cool thing that I'll be sharing soon titled Like Your Brain as an accessible community space for folks who want ADHD community and info but don't want to commit to anything big like Love Your Brain or other similar programs out there. It's something I've gotten a lot of requests for, and I'm putting that together as you listen, hoping to launch in September. It will definitely be announced on the email list as well as on the podcast itself. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you. I hope that sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you'd like to go deeper, I invite you to click on the link in the show notes to join my newsletter, where I share more on these topics, point you to community resources, and share cute pictures of animals. I only send it when I have something meaningful to say. A friend put it well. With your newsletter, I feel like the predictability is in the quality, not the quantity, and it feels delightfully magical to have it pop up whenever it feels like it. Plus, you can respond directly to me, which I love. That link is in the show notes, or you can easily find it at my website, matiamarae.com, M-A-T-T-I-A-M-A-U-R-E-E.com. 